to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Ephesians, but we will uh, be in a couple of different places. Uh, good morning. My name is Sam, one of the elders here, and um, we have been going through a uh, five weeks or week four of a five-week series called Grace. And there's a booklet in the back uh, where all those sermon series booklets are that will kind of help you maybe catch up if you haven't um, heard all of them or heard some of them. And obviously they're online. And I was thinking about this series going, we're tackling some pretty big topics. Uh, I haven't always used the big theological terms because I'm trying to take those concepts and make them a little more easier to understand. But I've realized that we could probably preach five weeks on every one of these. And so they're very complex. And there's no way for us, you know, there are men who have written volumes upon volumes on some of these topics. And so... Um, by God's grace, literally, we're doing our best to kind of keep it in bite-sized chunks. And so, all that to say, we're not going to answer every question, explore every single detail, but uh, if you're part of our, our road groups or a small group, that's where you can really dig into some of these things, and, and I pray that you will, will do that, because it's, I think, unwise to figure out some of these deep theological things in isolation by yourself. Uh, God gave us community so that to protect us, to encourage us, uh, and to, uh, to help us all learn uh, better. So I would encourage you to do that. But we're in part four, uh, and this is called Gracious Renovation. We've had uh, resolution and regeneration, uh, and then we had last week reclamation, and now we're in renovation, a lot of R's. I'm an English teacher, so I like alliteration. So you'll see a lot of alliteration in organization. Don't like sixes, like fives, like threes, like R's, those kind of things. It's weird, maybe a little OCD, but that's okay. Essentially, we're going through the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians. So we spend five weeks going through um, pieces uh, of that, and then uh, other parts of Ephesians and, and elsewhere. And really, it's an effort to explore um, the mystery of God's grace from before the foundation of the world till after it all ends as we know it. That there's grace as bookends to, uh, to our lives here on earth. And it's helpful to remember that you can't just take the book of Ephesians and, and things Paul is writing kind of outside of, of the context in which he is writing, not just uh, to the church of Ephesus, but specifically um, to God's people. God's people that's extended all the way through the Old Testament. And as we, I love to study the Old Testament. I love to preach the Old Testament. I hope to hit numbers here pretty soon. We've gone through Exodus and Joshua because I just enjoy the history and, and, and it's a foundational aspect of our faith. It's important to remember that the experience of the people of Israel in the Old Testament is really a picture of our own redemption and life with God. And we never want to just kind of piecemeal and take it apart. And so remember, as we read in Genesis and then into the book of Exodus, God redeemed His people from slavery and brought them out of what was the greatest empire on earth, Egypt, in order to make them into worshipers. That was his point. And his redemption um, of them is his saving by crushing this grand empire and these ten amazing and devastating plagues. That marked their identification as God's people, but 
their union with God, right? He's like, you're my people. I'm going to save you. I'm bringing you out. You're going to be a nation for me. That didn't automatically make them a holy nation. If you read the Old Testament, it's just full of really messed up people who are always complaining, always rebelling against God, and they're His people. So it wasn't like we married God and and now we're suddenly holy. That didn't happen. This is kind of why or one of the reasons why He gave them the law. And the law um, not only served as a guide kind of to godliness and guide to holiness, it also provided them a means to deal with all of their unholiness and all of their ungodliness. And there was a gracious atonement, right? A substitutionary atonement to cover the sins and their brokenness so that they could continue in relationship with God. Right? So he redeems them out. says, you're going to be my kids, my family, my people. And then he says, I'm going to give you this law because you're really a broken people and we need to cover your sins so that we can continue in relationship if just temporarily pointing obviously to the one sacrifice whom John said about Jesus, there's the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. So the law was given as a means of communing with God, of continuing relationship with God, of ensuring that they were right with God because they were offered and provided by grace, right? The law was a grace. God didn't have to do anything. Atonement for their sins and would make them righteous in a sense so that they could have communion with God. So in a similar way, as we've gone through this series, we see that all of that pointed to Jesus, particularly His life and death and resurrection, and God lovingly acted, just as He did with Israel, to save sinners. To love His enemies, or we saw last week, to die for the ungodly. Not to die for the clean, because there were no clean. Not to die for the soft-hearted, because there were no soft-hearted. Not to die to everyone who could see God and know they were all dead, all blind, all enslaved. He died for them when they were ungodly, demonstrating His love. And so, as verse 5 said, through the sacrifice of Jesus, through Jesus, God forgives the sins of His children past, present, and future. We have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. When we screw up, He says, took that one. Praise God. And the difficulty of the cross and the beauty of the cross at the same time is that God doesn't just ignore our badness. He didn't just excuse it or minimize these huge adoption files we had full of rebellion, right? He's like, well, let's just forget about that. That's not what He did. He said, no, that's horrible. In fact, that's so bad, I'm going to send My Son, I'm going to plan to send My Son to pay an infinite price that you'll never be able to afford to get you out of what is the devil's adoption agency and make you my kids. And so, this is what we'll call the act of God's grace. God acted graciously. God entered into our lives and God took us out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God adopted us. We didn't adopt God. He adopted us. This is the act of God's grace. It was most clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Literally means you didn't do anything. Right? It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So, the grace of the cross secures our union with God. Secures it. Those who put their faith in Christ, 
recognizing that He died in my place for my sins, the death I deserved, lived a life that I could never have but gives it to me, we are in union with God. Irrevocably, unconditionally. So put that union idea on the shelf for a second. The righteousness that we receive, right? That we are given, right? God produces. We tried to make ourselves righteous with the law. We've all failed at doing that. God creates a righteousness through the sinless life of His Son and gives it to us. But that righteousness we get is Christ. It's not our own. What do you mean? I mean, I still sin and so do you. Just like the Israelites, we didn't automatically become holy. We were holy in that we were His kids. We were His family. But I still sin. I still screw up. I'm, I still have bad thoughts. I still have bad actions. I'm st- still speaking words that are evil at times. But I didn't automatically become perfect. The grace of God, in other words, doesn't stop at the cross, praise God, or the empty tomb, praise God. It continues working out its purpose for us. We've been made holy in position, but God is still making us holy in practice. Okay? He's made us holy in position. He sees us covered in His Son. He loves us like He loves Jesus. We are forgiven like Jesus. We are loved that much, and yet, I'm a pretty screwed up kid and so are you. But slowly, I'm becoming less of one. Slowly, I'm starting to love sin less and love Jesus more. And any time I sin, in that moment, I have loved sin more than I have loved Jesus. But Jesus' love hasn't changed for me. That's the beauty. There's a difference here. We don't want to confuse our position and our practice. And what we're talking about is this distinction what theologians would say between our justification, yeah, big word, and our sanctification. Between our justification and our sanctification. Sanctification is this kind of ongoing process where we're becoming more righteous. It is literally like we've been set apart. And you go, well, I've already been set apart. Yes, you've been set apart and you're being set apart. That sounds like a paradox. Yeah, it kind of is. That's why I said one of the main words that comes up in Ephesians is mystery. How does this all work? I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. The Scriptures teach that we are set apart by an act of God's grace and we are being set apart by the work of God's grace. So you have the act of God's grace and the work of God's grace that continues to go on. And this is a lifelong process. By God's grace, literally and figuratively, I will be more righteous in my flesh. In other words, we'll just take my I will love my wife better tomorrow than I did today or next week than I did last week. That's the goal. That's the hope. I want to grow in that. We want to grow in that in every aspect. This is an ongoing, lifelong process that, I hate to break it to you, will never perfect. We'll never attain perfection. But we are commanded to pursue godliness. And the question is, how do we do that? There's a sense if, if we're being commanded to pursue godliness, to pursue holiness, to be holy, to love your wives more, to sacrifice more, 
to, to speak words that edify, like, that we can do that somehow. That we can grow in that somehow. It's a progressive process. Maybe two steps forward, right? Or three steps, two steps back, whatever that phrase is, right? I think Chuck Swindoll made it up. I don't know. But it is that, okay, growing, and then I'm falling flat on my face. Okay, I'm growing, falling flat on my face. In other words, real simply, we are redeemed works in progress. It's important to focus on the redeemed. Because if you don't, you actually begin to believe that your work will actually affect your redemption. No. That's an act of grace. Unconditionally, irrevocably. And so if you can sit on that, that's why I tried to hit it so hard last week. Like, you're a son, no longer an orphan. You're a son, and guess what? You can be an awesomer son. But when you're a bad son, you're still a son. That's the joy of it. The freedom in it. Verse 10, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? Act of grace. You've been saved by grace through faith. This is not yourself. No one could boast. Verse 10, which we don't often read, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says, For we are as workmanship. So, so for, right, because of this act of grace, because you've been saved by grace, for we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That sounds like God doing a lot more. Yes. See, the same grace that transforms us is the same grace that continues to reform us. We're in a perpetual process of renovation. As sinners, right? We want to talk about what you looked like if we just look at it in terms of a house, because renovation, that kind of makes sense. You and I... Before Jesus saved us, before Jesus redeemed us, we were an old, abandoned meth house that a hoarder lived in. And squatters came in and made it even worse. Okay, So there you go. Jesus comes in and purchases your house. You. And He doesn't purchase it so that He can level it and build condos. He purchases it not even to just make it livable, right? Because you could get all the junk out, maybe wash some stuff up, and then live in it. No, he wants to renovate it complete and make it beautiful as it was initially intended to be. Now, we're all different looking houses, granted, right? Some big, some small, some those geodesic domes, like that's my house, right? Whatever. But we all know what an old abandoned meth house looks like. And we know what a beautified version of you, that's where it's headed. Your house is under new ownership, and that owner intends to take care of it, and not just empty it of the garbage, but to fill it with beauty, and to renovate it to glory. And he does all this, I think, for three reasons. To make much of his own grace, to increase gratitude, and to increase glory. Basically, as grace goes out to more and we see God change, we go, look what you did, God. You're amazing. And as we declare that, more glory goes to Him. Grace, gratitude, and glory. We are redeemed works in progress. But there is a tension, though, between these ideas of justification and sanctification. Here's the tension. Between our position and our practice, between um, what people will say, faith and works. 
Where does faith stop and works start? Like, how does that all work together? Uh, and I wish I had a perfect answer for you. But I think there's two ditches on the side of the road, right? I love the concept of two ditches. The path we're supposed to walk, and we typically live life in one of the two ditches. And in terms of sanctification, it's very easy. One ditch is, I've been saved. I'm just going to let go and let God, right? He redeemed me, and he's going to change me. I don't got to do nothing because it just magically happens by me sitting and watching reality TV, whatever, right? That's one ditch. The other ditch, you can probably guess, is I have to do everything. I've got to white-knuckle it and do-gooder, right? Be better. And if I don't, I just stink, and I despair because I wasn't good enough. Or I do really well. I'm like, I rock as a Christian. You know how much I prayed this week? I read my Bible like every day for more than five minutes, right? And you're just like, so what happens on that ditch? You go between despair, oh, horrible, I rock. And it's nothing about Jesus. Those are the two ditches. And somewhere in between is actually where the Bible is, where God has sanctification. But exactly where God's sovereignty begins and where man's responsibility begins and how those all work, I don't really know. And the Bible doesn't help. That's just it, right? Get ready for this one. This is awesome. Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite verses. Like, okay, so what do I got to do? What does God do? This is just going to give you a greater paradox. Philippians 2 verse 12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Paul's talking, as you have always obeyed, obedience, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own faith with your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for, this is why you do that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, wait a second. When did you read that, right? Read it slowly. Work, like you guys got to work. You got to work on your obedience. For it's God who works in you to work for him. So I'm going to work because it's God who's working to work it all out. Works together, right? And I'm not saying it's like 50-50. I'm saying it's like 100-100. Like it all works together. That's 200. I know, paradox, right? There's a mystery to it. By grace, God saves us to be holy. What I'll just really simply call loving sin less and loving Jesus more. And by grace, by grace, right, it's a gift, God empowers us to work toward the holiness he calls us to. And the work of sanctification, right, the work of, of greater obedience, and we all know what that means, like, I don't want to talk about, we know what greater obedience looks like. Loving my wife better, working as unto the Lord more effectively, like, whatever, not lying, whatever you want to say. That work of sanctification has nothing to do with our union with Christ. It has everything to do with our communion with him. Stole that phrase from Kevin DeYoung. Awesome. The distinction between union and communion, I think in marriage, right, that's where we see it maybe most lived out or parenting. But in marriage, it's like, you know what? I am married to my wife, 
and we are going to marry until death do us part, which means the only condition is that she's breathing. So she's still breathing. She could get bad burns on her face. Nope, got to love her. She could become 450 pounds. Got to love her. She could say, I hate you. Got to love her because she's breathing. My union with her is not going to change, but my communion with her, my relationship can change all the time. The health and the joy and the love that exists within our union is affected. Now, she's not throwing down divorce papers every time I, like, screw up. But there may be less talking. There may be less affection. It may just be difficult to get along sometimes because our communion's off, because our love for one another is, is broken. We have to rest in the truth that God's union with us doesn't change, even if our communion with God does. And He wants our communion to be rich, and that's what we're talking about. How do we deepen our communion with God? And so, I'm going to go very Trinitarian on this, right? I think there's three aspects to it, and we'll hit them all pretty quickly. We have to understand what the motivation is for our sanctification. And that has to do with the Father. We have to understand what the model of our sanctification is, what we're aimed towards. That has to do with the Son. And we have to understand the means of sanctification, what has to do with the Spirit. So let's hit them real quickly. Begin with the motivation for sanctification. You're going to want to turn your Bible to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. And you should always, we have it on the screen, but you should always open your Bible. Here's why. You want to make sure I'm actually reading out of it, okay? You need to test what we teach by Scripture, what we believe by Scripture, and at least believe that out of my mouth, that that's true, right? So open the Bible, 2 Peter. The motivation for our sanctification, the motivation to want to be gooder, better, holier, godlier, however you want to describe it, is the finished work of the Father through Jesus Christ on the cross. The act of grace. We never want to forget the act of grace. We need to keep the act of grace, our union, on the forefront of our mind. That I am saved, I am loved, I am approved, I am forgiven. All these things. Never forget that. There's a reason why Israel was constantly told, remember your freedom, your redemption from Egypt. Because we forget our position in Christ often. Which leads us often to despair or pride. For 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read several verses. I, I could probably preach four sermons on this passage, but I won't. I'll just like read it and move on. 2 Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. That's a big statement. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That sounds like what we've been talking about by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, His promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now check out this next phrase. For this reason, make every effort. For this reason, what's this reason? The finished work of everything we've been blessed with and given in Christ by the Father. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother. He's being very direct of what we should be pursuing. 
Brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. What a beautiful passage. They are yours. Like all the wiring's there for them. And they should be increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten what? That he was cleansed from his former sins. What had he forgotten? The cross. The finished work of God. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm or strengthen your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's a bold statement. Our growth in godliness begins with believing the gospel. Period. With accepting what Christ has done on our behalf on the cross. We are set apart by God's act of grace. We have been deemed innocent. We have been deemed righteous. We have been given Christ's perfect record. That's the beginning of our growth and maturity. But as I said, we aren't automatically made righteous. We are, in some sense, but we're not in ourselves. This is why Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, used to describe Christians as simultaneously saint and sinners. At the same time. Like Israel, as I said, who was challenged again to remember the redemption, we are called to remember the cross. Remember what God has done, how much He has loved us, that He has redeemed us from slavery. Sin has no more power over us. He has forgiven us of our sin. We don't have to sit in guilt and shame. He has given us righteousness. We don't have to work to perform to get His love. He has adopted us as children. That can't change. I'm not going to lose my salvation. Our motivation to obey is no longer to be accepted. We are accepted. So we obey. It's getting them in the right order. Because you get them out of order, that's a life of really difficult, despairing, or prideful Christianity. Our relationship with God has changed completely. It used to be what maybe we could describe as a boss-employee relationship. I'll do this work. You pay me for it. If I don't do this work, you can fire me. Like That was in our flesh, our relationship with God. That's not a relationship with God anymore. It's now a father and child. And instead of looking at God and His commands or His warnings or His promises and going, He's a cosmic killjoy. We now see Him as a loving Father and His Word as loving instructions. Our, we've totally changed in our perspective and, and attitude towards God. We actually believe what Jesus said in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Check this out. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 11. Awesome verse. Why obey? These things I have spoken to you. What? To obey God's commandments? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We 
God's commandments totally different. Our motivation for obedience is not to impress the Father, but to enjoy Him. To enjoy Him. Which leads us to the model of sanctification. What is God doing to us? What is the whole point of growing in godliness and growing in obedience? It says we're supposed to, Peter said, we're supposed to supplement our faith with virtue, which is basically obedience, good works. So what's God's ultimate goal? Well, this is, among other places, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, says this, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, right, that's part of it, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay, so the aim of our growth and maturity is not just to be moral. It's not just to be gooder. So bad, right? The goal of our sanctification is God's renovation of the image of God in us. An image that's been broken like a shattered mirror. And he's beginning to rebuild it. And we know what a shattered mirror like. God's beginning to put the pieces together. And, but honestly, until we die, it'll never actually be perfectly put together. But it will slowly begin to reflect the image of Christ more clearly. Because Hebrews 1's tell us that he is the image of God. So as God renovates the image of God in us, what that really means is making us look more like Jesus in attitude and action. That's his goal. That's his aim. And this is going to require more than just a little paint on the walls. This is God's painful renovation, if you will. Right? There's additions to be made. There's walls to be knocked out. There's other stuff that needs to be modified. We are a redeemed work in progress, and it would be appropriate to put an under construction sign on our chest wherever we went. And to warn people, you better put a hard hat on, because I'm pretty messy. Okay? We are being renovated by God. We are works in progress, and it is a, a painful work. But what that means is a couple things. One, I'm not suggesting we're deficient in any way, because we're not deficient. We're just incomplete. God's Spirit, according to Peter, has given us all the materials that are necessary to renovate. Catch that? It's not that we're lacking anything, but we're slowly being built up with the stuff that's there. It means that with regards to our faith, you think of a construction zone, a house that's in the middle of renovation, of which some of you are in and have experienced. There's some unfinished areas. And sometimes they go unfinished for lots of years. And there are some exposed areas, and there's some weak areas, and there's some rotten areas. Dare I say, there's a few ugly areas. How many go in your house and are like, oh, I love this carpet, right? No, most of are like, this is a nasty old carpet. I wish we could afford to get rid of this, right? 
We just did that, like this little piece of carpet ripped it up. Oh, my gosh, it was nasty, right? There's a layer of dirt underneath there. There were stains on the backside of the carpet. We're like, I never spilt anything. I can't even remember what that was. It was just nasty. Just, oh, welcome to our lives, right? We can get by with some nasty carpet. Eventually, the Lord's like, that is stinky enough. and rips it out. Puts a nice floor down. We're under renovation, and for a while, there's, there's bits of ugliness, and as we, as we grow and, and we learn, you begin to go, man, I didn't even think that was rotten. That wall looked like it was totally good, and now it's like totally falling apart. That's God's grace, to show that to you, to reveal that to you. And you know what we like to do? Oh, we'll just put a picture over it and hide it, right? No one will know. Oh, it'll eventually be known. And so the beauty of, of resting in God's grace is that it's God's house. He already knows all the dirt, so I don't have to like hide it from anybody. But yeah, I'm really weak here. I'm trying to fix that. By God's grace, he'll give me the money and the tools and the, the know-how to get that fixed. But we can be honest about the fact that we're under construction. That's a new t-shirt. I'm making it. Trademark, <laughs> sanctification, work in progress, right? That's what we are. But we try to fake it. We really try to fake it. You know, we should buy nice Ikea furniture in there that really isn't furniture at all, right? And you put it all in there and put some paint on the walls. Like, hey, it's fine, right? Like, the roof's caving in. Don't you see that? And I can't even sit in this chair because it doesn't have enough screws in it. Like, so, like, it's, we're broken. And God is fixing us. As we, I believe, seek the things of Christ we begin to become more like Christ. And what does that mean? Not just more moral. It means you want to evaluate your life. Well, you want to evaluate your maturity and go, hmm, how am I doing? Evaluate how you compare with Christ. Are you becoming and living out the compassion of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the humility of Christ, the meekness of Christ, the patience of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the love that He had? And most of us go, yeah, pretty weak there, pretty weak there. But our hope is that we begin to look at our love a year ago and go, I'm becoming more loving by God's grace. I'm becoming more patient by God's grace. I don't think we should ever say, I am patient. I'm becoming more patient. I'm becoming more loving. How does this all happen, right? So if you got... The motivation is finish work, act of the Father. The model is I'm, I'm aiming to look more like Jesus, not just a really awesome, you know, good or better person, but more like Jesus, which actually might be a life that's a little more painful. Wait, he went to the cross. That's going to hurt. There's going to be suffering involved. Yeah. You are like, I'm going to be more compassionate with Jesus. Well, you also are going to suffer like Jesus the more you look like Jesus. which is difficult for us to believe that that's a life that's more joyful and contented, but it is. But that brings us to the, the last part, which is the means. Like, how does this all occur? And I believe this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's the forgotten God that we don't talk about very often, believing He's a force when He's actually a person. The person that Jesus promised to send to be the helper, comforter, and teacher for us, to point us back to Christ, to glorify Him. I think there's a danger in believing that, you know, okay, I'm supposed to look more like Jesus, and 
And how do I do that? Well, the power's just in me. I'm going I'm to white knuckle it and like, no, that's not the way to go. What Peter said and, and what I think Paul hints to in Ephesians is that we are actually encouraged to look and behold the glory of Christ through the Spirit of God. And as you behold the glory of Christ, as your eyes get turned towards His compassion and His kindness and His love and His forgiveness, you are transformed. Your eyes don't go off the cross. This isn't about memorizing a bunch of verses. The Pharisees did that and they missed Jesus. But it is about looking at the cross and getting changed as a result. God has given us, I believe, two things to empower us to change. One is desire. If there is a desire in you to change, if there is a desire in you to look more like Jesus, to be more forgiving, to be more loving, to be more patient, know this, it has nothing to do with you. That is God in you. Without God acting in our life to give us the desire, we will not pursue godliness, and any godliness we pursue will not be for God's glory. So by grace, our change begins with His desires planting in us to say, man, I, I want to stop doing this. I want to start doing that. But the second thing He gives us is the means. Because it's interesting to me that many of us men are often told, like, be the spiritual leader of your home. And I think men get to a place, or many do, where they go, I want to do that, and they just don't know how. Well, okay, what does that mean? And it's important to remember that any pursuit of godliness, any pursuit of, of more obedience, is not so that you impress God or get more merit. But God has graciously given us certain things, I believe, in life that says these will change you. Now, if we only focus on the means, right? If it's just, if you're, if you're growing a tree, you're like, well, i got to do this to the ground and put these fertilizer in. You could do all that stuff. But unless God grows that tree, nothing's going to happen. You can do all the work. So it's always an act of the Spirit. And God could certainly grow the tree without any of that work. But we know that growing that tree is going to require that work, but just because you do that work doesn't mean the tree is going to grow. Does that make sense? The means of grace have been given by God. He said these things, if you engage in these things, you will grow. You will be changed. These are my gifts. The power has been given by me to change you. So we can certainly make use of the means of grace that he has graciously given. So what are those means? Well, I think, just hit them really quickly. Number one is the Word of God. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts you deeply. That's why most of us don't read it. I have never encountered, I shouldn't say never, I rarely encounter someone who says, I just read the Bible too much. That's my problem, my weakness. If you are not seeing change in your life, it could very well be the result of you not listening to Jesus. He has spoken. The Word of God is living and active, and it transforms. It never comes back void. 
and we have we have this we have this power right here to change. And I'm saying it's a mystery about how it changes us. It's not like you go, okay, put it in my head. It just it's living. You're you're engaging with the Lord. He's speaking to you as you and you are changed. Guys go, I don't know how to love my wife. Ephesians 5. It tells you how to love your wife. You go, oh, love my wife as Christ loved. Okay. The Word of God changes you. If you are struggling right now, whether it be with a, a sin that you just cannot break from, whether it be just in contentment in life, whether it be at work, whatever, possibly consider maybe you should spend more time listening to Jesus. And reminding you, because this is what it will do, where your true identity is, where your true hope is, where your true power is. The Word of God is one. The second, means of grace. So a gift that God has given to say, look, if you engage with this, it will change you. The change is my power, but you're going to have to actually pray for it to occur. Prayer. What's that? That's just talking with Jesus. Just talking with Jesus. And I say this as someone who struggles deeply with prayer. There are certain aspects I don't struggle with. I pray constantly for my sermons. I pray for the church. It's difficult for me to pray regularly with my wife. She would tell you that. She's always like, should we pray? I'm like, yes. Thank you for being a helpmate again. And I feel like a, again, right? But prayer. And consider how your life will be changed if you just prayed the Lord's Prayer. I don't mean by rote, though you can do that. I do that with our kids, our younger kids. But consider the Lord's Prayer, what it says. Our Father. Father right there, right? Who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice is the first thing you pray before you ask for the things you want. Think about how your life would be changed if you prayed that every single day. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Just give me what I need for today, Lord, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Forgives my sins. Okay, I'm going to deal with my sin now. I'm going to confess to you, God. Does that forgive others? Lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. Like, just pray that. Talking to Jesus, speaking to Jesus, it will transform your life. Third thing that I believe is a means of grace is the people of God, the church. Ephesians 4 says that when the body is together and each part is working properly, we grow together in love. In other words, the church, the people of God, whether it be gathered or scattered, is a gift of God to change you. Why is that? Because you are living in community with people who are supposed to be your family, therefore you're going to be transparent, therefore they're going to know you and your sins. What do people typically do when they sin? They isolate. And when they're in community, they can't. And you got brothers that come along and say, dude, I love you, you need to stop doing this. And give some loving admonishment. Or dude, you can do this. In Christ you are a conqueror. Encouragement, love, help, community. God has given that as a blessing to change you, to sanctify you, to live your life in front of everyone else so people can go, your marriage seems off, dude. What's going on? 
We don't like that. Worry about your own grass in your yard. Don't need to look over in my yard. You know what? Let's knock down the fences and look at each other's yards. Why? Because I need you. You need me. We need each other. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the church is a body. So cut off an arm, we're less of a body. Cut off a leg, we can get by, but we're less of a body. You need the church, and the church needs you. If you're an arm, good luck living life by yourself. But if we're a body, we don't have the arm, we're less. You see how that works? God has given us the church so that he can change us. Make us all look more like Jesus, because in Timothy it says, the church is the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. So imagine a group of redeemed people who are honest enough to say, we're broken, redeemed, works in progress, and we love each other, and we love you. Boast in the Lord, boast in the Lord, boast in the Lord. But we don't live like that. We're supposed to. Last couple. Service unto God, I think, actually is a means of sanctification. When we're not serving others, typically we are thinking about ourselves. In fact, we get so focused on our own life, on our own home, on our own needs, on our own brokenness, on our own everything, that we ignore the needs of those around us. And when you deliberately put yourself into service, even when you don't feel like it, I believe you're changed. When you begin to act like Christ did, who came to serve, you actually begin to desire to serve. Just like working out, very rarely does the affection for what you're doing lead. It usually follows. And we're very reluctant to serve because typically go, there's no benefit, what's in it for me? I'm going to lose time, I'm going to lose energy, but you're going to be changed in doing so because you're making a sacrifice like Christ, and through that, He is going to transform you to look more like Him. That will give not only grace to other people as they see, but glory to God and you more joy. Question is, do you believe that? Because I think we struggle to believe that sacrifice is going to lead to more joy. All of these lead to a deeper dependence on grace, which simply means a deeper communion with Christ. And the question is, what if I don't make means of those things? What if I don't read my Bible? What if I don't pray? What if I don't go to church? What if I don't serve? God will still get you. God will still get you, and here's how. The fifth and final one, trials. Trials. James tells us to consider trials. Well, I'll read what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, colors, shapes, and sizes. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. What's the goal? that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, right? Not wisdom to how do I get out of this trial, but how to understand how God is changing you and how you need to learn and grow in it. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for one who doubt is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by wind. For that person not supposed to receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So let me just... If you leave with nothing, leave with this truth. Right now, wherever you are experiencing pressure, stress, irritation, 
pain, suffering, whether it be localized around a person, a place, a thing, a job, know this, that spot where you're feeling pressed is God telling you something needs to change. That kind of pressure and pain is not the sign of his absence. It is the sign of God's presence in your life. And it doesn't mean that like the change is stop sinning. It's just to grow in some aspect to look more like Jesus. I think oftentimes we're so irritated with a person or a, a situation that we lose sight of what actually is going on. Where God is actually going, you know what, I know your kids are really unruly right now. I'm actually working on your sense of control that you have to have. Could be on your lack of discipline that you need to encourage, but it could also be God changing your heart. Whenever we have an experience that's difficult, we're always wondering, how is God changing all these other hearts? Wish God would change that heart. Stop irritating me. Wish He'd change the heart of my boss, change the heart of my kids, change the heart of my spouse. What if? What if? That point of pressure is actually God saying, no, your heart needs to change. I'll deal with them too. But your heart is what needs to change. In closing, I really mean that. Here's the hope. We could get stressed out as we look at our house, right? Our redeemed work in progress. I go, man, there's a lot of work here. It is a mess. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ. God's not done with you, and God is going to continue to work with all of us until he makes us perfect as he planned. And that will either be at our death or at Christ's second coming, and I'll take either one at this point. The gospel of grace is the motivation, the model, and the means for change. I believe the act of the Father is the motivation I believe the model or example of the Son is the model, and the power of Spirit is the means. And because of our union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, by the grace of the Father, we pursue a deeper communion with Him through our Spirit-empowered obedience. We are not devoted to just being better and more moral people. We are devoted to being more dependent upon grace, which requires we're more conscious of our own brokenness. So that when we succeed and we rock it, like, man, I just love my wife like no one's business, we don't go, she should be happy to have me as a husband. Right? We go, we boast in the Lord. Because I know apart from the Lord, I would be horrible. And when we fail, and fall flat on our face, we boast in the Lord and say, by God's grace, He knew I was going to screw up, and by the power of His resurrection, He will lift me up and keep me going. Either way, we boast in the Lord. We are told to believe these things 
We are told to practice these things, particularly in community, and we are told to devote ourselves to these things until Jesus returns or we return to him. And that's why we take communion. To remind ourselves that we are redeemed work in progress, dependent upon his grace. It's important for us every Sunday to take this. We should just put the under construction table on here and like maybe a couple hard hats and come up. Because the truth is, that's what we're being reminded of. God's still working on us. God has not given up on you. Lean into grace, lean into grace, lean into grace. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the grace that saved us. We have done absolutely nothing to restore our relationship with You, Father, but You have done everything through sending Your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins in our place. You have raised Him from the dead. And through Him, You have given us life. We who were dead are now alive. We who were blind can now see. We thank You for that grace. And I pray that we will become more and more dependent upon Your grace as we grow. I thank You that You didn't just adopt us as sons and then leave us at home by ourselves, but Lord, You cared for us. You love us enough to continue to watch us change and grow and mature and become more like Jesus in our flesh. So I pray, Lord, that we will become more dependent upon Your grace, not our own efforts, but as we engage in the means of grace You have given, whether it be through Your Word or through prayer, or through loving and being part of the church, Lord. That we will grow together in grace and display more clearly the restored image of Your Son in us. Forgive us for our failings that You already expect. And empower us, Father, to flee from despair and to boast in Jesus. And forgive us for our pride when we think we're awesome husbands or wives or moms or dads or friends. And help us, Father, to boast in the Lord and what He is doing through us. It is in the name of Jesus that we hope. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. It is in the name of Jesus that we live. Amen.